Hi everyone, I'm Mike Morris here for episode four of Community Corner. Tonight I'll be speaking with two incredible community leaders about a difficult yet critically important topic, gender-based violence. Even before the pandemic, violence against women was at crisis levels across the country. Approximately every six days, a woman in Canada is killed by her intimate partner, while here in Waterloo Region, we've been ranked as the least safe urban area in the country for women. And the pandemic is again making a bad situation worse. Regions across the country are reporting a 20 to 30% increase in survivors coming forward. We can and we must do better. Particularly in this difficult time when home isn't safe for everyone. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please either call the Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region's 24-7 support lines. In Kitchener and Waterloo, it's 519-742-5894. And in Cambridge, it's 519-653-2422. Or you can also call the Sexual Assault Support Center of Waterloo Region's Crisis Line at 519-741-8633. In tonight's conversation, Jen Hutton of Women's Crisis Services and Sarah Castleman from the Sexual Assault Support Center join me to talk about ending gender-based violence in our community. We talk about what you may not know about gender-based violence and their respective organizations, how the pandemic has affected their work, and maybe most importantly, what we as individuals can do to support survivors. Jen and Sarah have both helped increase my understanding of this important topic, and I hope you take something away from this conversation too. Please, if you've got any feedback or suggestions for up conversations, let me know. You can reach me at Morris Mike on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or through my website, MikeMorris.ca. It's spelt M-I-K-E-M-O-R-R-I-C-E.ca. Thanks for listening. Welcome again, uh, Sarah and Jen. Great having you both here. Uh, thank you to all of you that have uh, joined us tonight. Great having you here with us as well. As we begin, I'd like to just start uh, by acknowledging that uh, Sarah, Jen, and I are speaking with you tonight from the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Neutral peoples. As many of you may know, we're situated on the Haldeman Tract. This is 950,000 acres of land that was given to the Six Nations in 1784, 10 kilometers on each side of the Grand River. More specifically, Kitchener, where I'm speaking with you from, is on a portion of this land known as Block 2, which was intended to be leased to settlers and instead was sold as land with full title. It's worth repeating that across all of the Haldeman Tract, there were very few outright sales of land, and 90% of the leased land has never been paid for or paid to Six Nations. If you're joining us from another location, I'd encourage you to research the history of the land you live and work on. For my part, my interest in acknowledging this history is in reminding us all that the injustice of this past plays an important role in informing our conversations today. For example, the homicide rate of Indigenous women and girls was nearly seven times that of non-Indigenous women and girls in 2018. When we consider the roots of gender-based violence, no doubt the history of this land and the continued impacts of colonialism play a role. Tonight, I acknowledge all of this in the interest of nurturing and seeking to live out a shared active hope that this conversation and the days ahead are part of a journey towards genuine truth and reconciliation. I'm honored to be joined today by both Jen and Sarah. Uh, Jen is the CEO of Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region. Um, and Sarah Castleman, the Executive Director of the Sexual Assault Support Center of Waterloo Region. 
Uh, they are two uh, women that have taught me so much. Uh, their insights shaped the blog I shared earlier this week, and they're both powerful community champions working to end gender-based violence in Waterloo Region. Tonight, we're going to have a discussion about what we can all do to help end gender-based violence, uh, the supports available for survivors across Waterloo Region, and more. Uh, welcome again, Sarah and Jen. Great having you both thanks here. Thanks for having us. Uh, thanks again to those of you that have joined us. Uh, I'm going to start with just a few uh, key facts to kind of start the conversation, and then be, well, I've got a few questions uh, uh, for both Jen and Sarah to, to kind of initiate the conversation. Um, as you have questions that come to mind, feel free to share those in the chat and uh, there'll be plenty of time before we wrap up to, uh, to get into some of those questions as well. So I want to start with just a few of the key facts that I included in the blog. Uh, first, that violence against uh, women was at crisis levels even before the pandemic. Uh, it's about every six days that a woman in Canada is killed by her intimate partner. That in Waterloo region, we've been ranked as the least safe urban area for women. And then that the pandemic made a bad situation worse still, uh, where my understanding is that regions across the country are now reporting up to a 30% increase uh, in gender-based violence. So there's no doubt that we can and we must be doing better. And so again, I just feel quite um, lucky to be able to have this conversation with, with both you, Sarah, and you, Jen, to hear from you. So we'll start um, with Jen Hutton um, with kind of what you would like everyone in our community to know about gender-based violence in Waterloo Region. And then we'll turn to Sarah with, uh, with the same. Okay. Well, I think, I think you gave a good segue to uh, what I was going to start with. And, and that's really just how prevalent um, domestic violence or gender-based violence really is in our community. Um, to put that into context a bit more, we know police get about 6,000 domestic violence service calls a year. That number, um, you've maybe heard it before, it tends to be um, surprising to some people. And it's actually stayed the same sort of year over year for a number of years. Um, yet this number is only really the tip of the iceberg because only about 30% call the police. And as you spoke about, Mike, we're, we're hearing more and more from Statistics Canada, um, other VAW violence against women organizations, the police that are saying things are going up. And I don't think we've really seen the full surge yet. Sort of pre-pandemic levels, we know, you know, our shelters were full. Um, there were women needing shelter space that we would sometimes have to redirect because we were full. And that kind of changed during the pandemic um, where we actually saw our shelter occupancy, at least during the first wave, go down like 40 to 60 percent capacity hmm. completely unheard of um, and we have quite large shelters and it was really because at least I think that it wasn't um, safe for women to even reach out for support at that time so definitely concerning um, now that we've been in the second wave and things started to open up after the first wave we see our, our levels get back up but not 
quite to our, our usual capacity. They're starting to get there now, but I'm still worried about people that aren't leaving. And, you know, we, we hear all this messaging around home, you know, stay home, stay home. And I think there's been a lot of awareness that home's not safe for everyone, but yet I think that people are, are staying and, um, you know, it, it's really worrisome as to, you know, what we're seeing and, and that I think we haven't seen the full surge yet. So, so this is kind of the level of the extent of the problem. It, it's pretty, it's pretty major. Um, so I'll let Sarah kind of do her thing. She's got her, um, her cute little kitten that joins in with on meetings that I kind of get distracted by. So adorable. The part that folks missed uh, that I said to Mike right, right before we went live was I have a kitten and right now there's no one else in my house to distract the kitten. And if I shut the door, the kitten will cry just outside until, so the kitten is right, right now, just biting, biting my toes. So um, I'm going to try and uh, just ignore that this is the exact moment from the day where the cat is deciding that I'm necessary. But um, I will, I will really try. And I, I'll try to lock him out and see if he uh, cries too much. But um, so you know, your question was, what do we want everyone in the community to know about gender-based violence? And you talked about uh, the fact that our community had been rated the least safe major urban center in Canada for women a couple of years ago. And that was a study that was done by the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. And they looked at the 26 largest cities in Canada and rated them on a number of different factors. And so they looked at our police reported data around sexual assault, domestic violence, and criminal harassment, which is stalking, um, and a few other things, things like police uh, unfounded rates for sexual assaults, uh, which is um, a police classification that means that, uh, in the opinion of police, that crime was neither attempted nor occurred. And so that contributes to um, uh, conversations around violence against women and community. So there was lots of different factors, but our community was rated the least safe, and that was a couple years ago. And at that time, a lot of folks in the community and in the media um, reached out and said, do you think that's true? And so we had a lot of conversations, and um, you know, a lot of the dialogue was, does it mean that it's less safe, or does it mean that more more people, more women are reporting in your community. There could be lots of reasons for that. And I agree that there could be lots of reasons. But when you actually looked at the situation um, that violence against women organizations were facing, uh, the question actually became, does it matter if we're the 26th least safe or the 25th? Uh, because we've been running uh, significant waiting lists for our services for the last number of years in our community. So we're the Sexual Assault Support Center. Uh, we wrap survivors of sexual violence in community care. And six years ago, uh, apologies for those who've heard me say this like a broken record, but six years ago, we would have, if we had 40 survivors on our waiting list, we would have been trying to figure out how to handle that crisis. Because when a survivor of sexual assault reaches out for support, they need support then. Um, and so to have a waiting list at all was, was very problematic. Um, before COVID hit, 
we were now averaging 140 survivors on our waiting list at any point. And that was with considerable growth. We'd added many more counselors uh, to our team. And so the numbers of survivors that were reaching out to us was unprecedented in our, you know, we're in, heading into our 32nd year now as an agency. And so the, the reality is, is whether or not we were the least safe urban center or one of the least safe, the issue is, is that there's a significant issue of gender-based violence in our community. And that was heading, that was before the pandemic. And so the pandemic has, has caused an incredible increase. Um, and we went through our different program areas and compared stats. And so we were already in that crisis situation. And since COVID hit, we've now seen a 55% increase in requests for counseling support for survivors of sexual violence. So uh, our waiting lists have grown further and we are growing further to meet the demand. We're actually doing hires right now because of some of the generosity of our community. But um, I would say, I think that the community doesn't always understand the level of need that exists. And I sometimes wish that someone could answer the call, a call in our office uh, from a survivor and understand how important it is that a survivor gets help when they reach out. I think one call uh, would actually change how people feel significantly in terms of the demand. And I have a kitten uh, trying to drink my water that I have beside me. So on that note, I'll, I'll pause uh, and let others speak for a moment. So as we were getting started, Sarah and I were speaking about uh, Oscar's his name, yes. correct? So speaking about Oscar joining us and said, well, it's not a particularly formal conversation. So absolutely glad to have him with us. Uh, and Sarah, I appreciate having you share some of those numbers uh, as well. Jen, you know, the 6,000 calls you're speaking of, I can say to my own experience in, you know, my recent conversation with a survivor uh, that you know, hearing the extent to which the supports for her changed her life and were critical to her healing journey in the years since. You know, it's so often the case that in the statistics, we lose sight of the people whose lives, I think we got the 140 survivors you have shared with me before, Sarah, about being on that wait list. That's 140 people in our community who are waiting for the critical support that, um, that they need in their healing journeys. And, and so, yeah, I just, I, I hope we might have a chance you know, as we move through, through this conversation to hear some of uh, what you might be able to share, what's appropriate in terms of sharing some of those, um, the stories of, of people in our community that your organizations are supporting to help uh, understand the reality of what it means for this many people in our community, whether it's whatever, as you're saying, Sarah, 25th or 26th, the reality is that uh, we're not meeting um, the needs of, uh, of, of women and, and girls in our community who've been affected. Um, and so let me now love to hear more about both your organizations and the survivors that your organizations are supporting. Are there key things, and I'll start with you again, Jen, in terms of what you want our community to know about women's crisis services uh, the supports you provide and the survivors that you support. Yeah. So I alluded a little bit to what we've been seeing in our, our shelters and, and we have two shelters. We have Anselma House in Kitchener and we have Haven House in Cambridge. So altogether we have 90 beds. 
So a very, very large shelters, um, some of the largest in the province. Of those 90 beds, 58 of those beds are funded, but we, we definitely have the need for, for all 90. But as much as a big part of what we do is those shelters, and they're critical um, because they provide safety and all that kind of stuff, is I think people also just know us for those shelters or are most familiar with those shelters and even what happens in shelter. Like some of the programming that we run in shelter is we have child and youth workers, we have a clinical psychologist, we have a music therapist, um, trauma yoga, because what we know too that people that experience trauma and when they're coming to us, they're at a crisis point, um, that talk therapy is not always the most beneficial at that point. It serves a purpose, but it doesn't always work for, for everyone. So it's important for us to have a menu of services. And the other thing is the other stuff that we do in the community. Like we see over a thousand women in the community in our outreach program. And just to know that people don't need to just come into shelter to get our services, nor do they necessarily have to leave an abusive situation. We meet with lots of women in the community who maybe they just want to meet with one of our workers once because they want to know how they can live more safely. Um, they might want to know something about their children and the impact on their children. They might just want some information. And it's really important that our outreach services are very flexible and very accessible because that one, that person who might want that one meeting, three or four months down the road, things may change. It may become unbearable. So at that time, they may need to um, come into shelter. So I just really want people to know that, that we do other programming other than just shelter because that tends to be what we're maybe most known by. So just to kind of explain that, I don't know, Mike, do you want me to kind of get into the three points or should we um, switch up the voices for a bit and just mind speaking? Sure, yeah, over to you in that case, Sarah, we can always come back, Jen, okay. and share kind of if there are kind of a top yeah. three, um, that'd, be, that'd be great. So yeah, Sarah, back, back, back to you. Um, I think Jen was talking about the fact that there's a whole range of services at women's crisis services for survivors of, of domestic violence um, and that you have to have a range of options uh, to meet the needs of individual survivors and so um, that is very much in line with intersectional feminist values of how you do this work and so i would say that uh, the same thing exists for survivors of sexual violence at our center. We really work to wrap survivors of sexual violence in community care, um, and we have the traditional supports. We have the counseling supports. We have the emergency supports if someone uh, needs uh, accompaniment going to the hospital or police station, those kinds of things. But we also have so many different options. So we have a really strong group and workshop program for survivors. And um, when, when everything was in person, we never did anything uh, with groups and workshops online before. We did have online counseling available, but not in group group uh, format. And uh, by the end of March, so within a couple of weeks of the pandemic hitting, we rolled out our first uh, group online. And we we're a bit nervous because it, uh, it was something different, but 
we quickly saw that our group program was going to be bigger than ever because the thing that we've said to survivors of sexual violence for so long is you're not alone. And we say that because survivors of sexual violence, there's so much shame, um, blame that, that everything's sh shrouded in secrecy often and not a lot of folks know. And so the issue of, of dealing with isolation and feeling alone has been such a thing that survivors have struggled with for so long. So we exist to say, you're not alone and we're gonna walk with you on this journey. And um, with, with our groups, we've seen a 312% increase with COVID in participation. So our groups are filling up, we're needing to split them and create separate groups um, because of the amount of survivors that are accessing that kind of support right now. Uh, so we have groups, we have workshops, um, we have a 24-hour support line, as does uh, Women's Crisis Services. Um, and often folks think, oh, it's a 24-hour crisis line, we don't want to call it unless we're in crisis, when in fact, that's a 24-hour support line that you can absolutely call when you're in crisis, or you can call if you just need someone to talk to, or you it's two o'clock in the morning and you're triggered and you need someone to ground you. Uh, it's there as a resource. We have online um, chat support options through our website, as does Women's Crisis Services. These are all new things that we both implement it to uh, give folks new ways to, to reach us during COVID. Um, and then there's just so many other things. We cannot offer practical supports to survivors. Uh, we have food self-care items in our office, so many other things like that. And so uh, we will go to court with someone. And I think that a lot of times someone gets short-term support after they experience an assault, but they don't understand, say, if they're gonna engage with the, the criminal justice process, that if they do to go to court, court's often two years long. Um, or longer with COVID and uh, having someone, an agency that can walk with you through that time, that can go to court with you if you want that support, can debrief what that looks like, uh, that's what a community-based sexual assault center does. Um, and so I think that uh, understanding the, the breadth of our, our, of our services in that there's not one piece that we do, it's that we wrap survivors in care in so many different ways. Um, the other thing I would say is that we're, we really balance our direct services, so our, our counseling services, our crisis services, with our public education and social change work. And we have one of the strongest uh, public education programs of any um, sexual assault center, or violence against women's services really, in, in the province, in the country potentially, uh, we have a really strong group of folks that go out and they talk about all different things around how to prevent gender violence, how to respond when someone discloses that they've been sexually assaulted, um, how to be an effective ally. We have a really strong male allies program that engages men and boys um, in really positive ways with their unique ability and responsibility to be part of the work to end gender-based violence. So, uh, I was just explaining right before this meeting actually to someone how valuable that is to us to have the direct service piece but the social change and education piece and how we need both feet to move forward. We need to do both those pieces of work to move forward um, because we are committed to social change uh, and, and honestly, if, if the whole Me Too movement taught us anything, it's that social change is possible, that, that attitudes can start to shift. And we did see so much shifting over the last few years in regards to sexual assault. So, um, yeah, those are some of the key things that I would 
well, and, I want to share. And Sarah, from my time leading a nonprofit, this was the academic research uh, that I sought out as well, uh, a book that I used to love called Forces for Good, uh, profiled specifically high-impact nonprofits across North America. And one of the top uh, characteristics was it was those that both delivered high-quality service to the people that they were looking to serve and advocated alongside and recognized the virtuous cycle uh, between those two. And, and I've certainly seen both your organizations uh, doing that so effectively in our, in our community. Um, and particularly on, on the crisis line, Sarah, I think that's a really helpful clarification that we can get from a conversation like this. I've actually had that conversation uh, with someone in our community before around what, what is a crisis and is it, it would even be appropriate for me to call that line and with that person. And so thanks for kind of clarifying that that's even just support that's available 24 seven, both for survivors or survivors of sexual uh, of, of violence, as well as domestic violence with women's crisis services. Uh, Jen, coming back to you, did you want to kind of articulate your, uh, the, the three and then we'll, um, yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. Thanks. And, and even just, just to add on, um, Mike, what, what you and Sarah have said about uh, the crisis support line, I also would encourage friends or family members to use that resource because, uh, you know, that stat around only so many people tell the police, there's a lot more people, survivors, that tell a friend or, or family member. It's more like 80%. So sometimes those friends and family members are, are kind of unsure what to do or how to be most supportive or what resources are out there. So I'd also encourage them to, to reach out too, just as, as another um, resource. So another point that I was just going to speak about, and it was actually a tweet that I saw today that, that was posted, and it really talked about, um, I think it was an interview, and I can't remember who it was with, because I just kind of saw it quickly. I, it was Gail King who was doing the interview, and she was asking a survivor of um, domestic violence, and she was hesitant in asking this question for, for good reason, but was asking um, this woman, why did you stay? So, and you know, the amount of times I hear that question, I'm sure Sarah's heard it, or you know, we, it's something that we talk about, or, or people are, are curious about, um, but even, you know, and, and, and the survivor had such a great response to this that she said, we need, we, I'm not even going to answer that question. We need to stop asking that question and rather let's ask about why do people abuse? Why, particularly men, because that is what the statistics say, and we know that for various reasons. But why are men abusive? Why is there this need for power over or control over um, opposed to why does women stay? Because it is, you know, I, domestic violence or gender-based violence is a very complicated thing that's very, very layered. Um, and there is just so many reasons and so many barriers to, say, a woman leaving an abusive situation. And we got to, you know, we have to talk about what those barriers are. You know, we know some of the stuff that we're seeing, you know, other tweets that were, were all over Twitter today was about um, costs for housing locally. You know, there's so many barriers to that. So how does a woman, um, maybe with no income or with one income, move out of a situation where they may be financially reliant. So there's just so many pieces to that. So I just thought 
I would would raise that. And, and the last point that I would make that I, again, something I say very often is if a woman is thinking about leaving a situation of domestic violence, we know that that is absolutely the highest risk time. So at that point, I, I ask people another reason to reach out, whether it's to meet with an outreach worker, whether it's to talk um, to somebody through a crisis support line, but to really get help around how to leave safely. Because there's a lot of things that need to be considered in doing that. And we just, you know, our business is really about safety and we just want to make sure that women are, are thinking about things and that they have safe exit plans and that kind of thing, which is, you know, what we do kind of day in, day out. So we would really want to help a woman get some assistance in doing that um, just because it is such a high risk time. Yeah, th thanks for that, Jen. I can only imagine how questions like that must make your blood boil um, <laughs> around how we, uh, yeah, the, the victim blaming type conversations that you must both have to uh, choose to move away from and shift the conversation uh, away from. Um, maybe we'll start with you, Sarah, in terms of, I was curious, the, on the hard weeks when you're feeling burnt out and tired and all the rest and and be submitted three grant applications and then you know heard a difficult story from a staff member whatever the case curious some of the stories that inspire you or energize you to keep going in this work for the number of years that you've been in it whether it's the story of a particular survivor or or another around around the work that you do um what, what are some of those are there, are there some stories that some of those examples you go back to to remind yourself of um, that kind of energize you that might be helpful for others to hear too? Well, I mean, every, every day, every week, uh, we get testimonials from folks that have used our services. And that's actually one of the best things about my job is that, uh, you know, often when you're in leadership, you hear all the things that aren't going well or the funding that's not there or the waiting list. And so being able to get the testimonials um, from survivors, which we actually value, uh, one, just because we're so invested in this work, it's great to hear how, how change is happening. Two, because those that fund us like to see that, that the work is having an impact. Um, so we get those all the time. Um, and often they're not, you know, things aren't necessarily what I can share, but there's a story that I do often share. Um, uh, just there was a, a, a young woman who accessed our services um, and she had, um, she had basically was being abused by her stepfather and had, um, had come forward and worked up the courage to tell her mother and her mother um, had then told her to leave. And she went through a really hard time um, for a long time because she didn't have supports uh, when that first happened. Um, and after a suicide attempt, she was connected with our center. Um, and now that young woman is a little bit older. Uh, she's a support worker herself in the community. She has a family um, and she did a lot of work with our center. She actually volunteers with our center. But there's, there's so many lives in our community that have been changed 
we have uh, we have former clients that have gone on to write books and dedicate them to their counselors at our center. Uh, lots of volunteers at our center who answer our 24 hour support line, who at one point access services. Um, it is it is really an honor to do this work. And uh, often folks say, it must be so hard doing this work. Like for almost 20 years, I've been doing this kind of work. And the thing is, is that it's an incredible honor and you are, you have the ability to impact someone's life so profoundly that uh, I think it must be challenging to do work that's not meaningful in that way. So uh, there's those, those stories, but I think the, the thing that uh, is giving me energy right now is the fact that I think that there's a, a shift happening. I really do. I think that in the last six years, there's just been so much more dialogue about sexual violence. Um, it started Cosby, Gameshi, um, uh, obviously with Weinstein, but there was all the dialogue about sexual assault in the military, in the RCMP. There was uh, the, all the articles about concerns over police responses to sexual assault. There's articles about sexual assault um, in on college and university campuses. And so with all this this attention to the issue, survivors started reaching out, they started speaking out. October 2017 was when Me Too hit. There was a huge shift at that time and then the Time's Up uh, movement after that. And people started uh, paying attention in ways they hadn't before. And there was lots of folks in the community that started to reach out to us to see how they could support our center and our work that hadn't done it before. And so over the last couple of years, there's been so many amazing uh, things that the community has done to support our work and recognize our work, which actually makes us, you know, we always say to survivors, you're not alone. And like last year, Communitech gave us um, a wonderful surprise donation um, to help us meet the demands that we're seeing with COVID. And when I got this email that said, hey, by the way, we've collected more than $40,000 for your center and, and a number of other charities, uh, it, it felt like the community was telling us that we weren't alone as we were trying to navigate this with survivors. So um, I think that seeing that the community is embracing us and recognizing our work and looking to support us, uh, we're, we're in a partnership right now with Social Venture Partners. We were their selected 2020 investees, so they're gonna be working with us for three years. Like those are the things when I see the community embracing us and um, wanting to help us meet the demand, it gives, it gives me energy. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Sarah. It's also for me a really um, inspiring point for the fact that anyone in our community can be alongside both Women's Crisis Services and SASC in the work you're doing, whether it's through, uh, you know, joining the Male Allies program, volunteering, contributing as a donor. And to me, that's, that's so gratifying knowing that there are options for anyone in our community that... Um, might not have the trained skills to be on your staff team and also can still have other ways to engage that are meaningful for you and might also be for them to be a part of um, working towards ending gender-based violence. And so, yeah, hearing your perspective on that's really, uh, really wonderful. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, Jen, for yourself on some of those kind of harder uh, days and, and weeks, uh, this, this, the stories and, and that which keep you going? Yeah, yeah, I would say very similar to, to what um, Sarah has said that, you know, sometimes 
reading some of those testimonials and uh, a couple times that it's it's been clients of ours or women that that we've supported that's actually said I want the CEO or I want this person to also know how amazing you are or how much you've changed my life and like the one woman a couple things that I can read without kind of saying um, and revealing anything about her for her confidentiality but even just just talking about what it's been like being in shelter and coming into shelter during COVID, which has been a, a really, really tough time. And it's been a really tough time um, for our staff uh, because we're doing what we're doing, but we have all sorts of COVID protocols. So this woman said, you know, it, it's a very challenging, difficult environment that, that women find themselves when they come to you. And of course, these challenges are made much more difficult due to COVID-19. She said, however, in spite of these challenges, the highs, the lows, the stress, the emotions, the difficulty, you should know that the work that you do is so important. And this woman said, I'm just extremely grateful from the bottom of my heart. And it was just so touching. And I found that in um, my physical mailbox at work. So that was, that was definitely a good day um, to read that. And you know, it's just, it's something that we hear the stories of kind of time and time again. You know, even sometimes I, I hear workers say, you know, they, they meet with a woman, um, either she's coming into shelter or they're meeting with her in the community. And even just the appearance of that woman, you know, talk about like people's eyes or, you know, that things, they just seem dim or they just don't, seem like they're that well or that they have that much energy or they're feeling very good about themselves and then seeing them towards the end of that support all of a sudden they have light back in their eyes and they're vibrant again and it, like Sarah said it, it's amazing some of the stuff that the people that we've supported have accomplished you know we've had women finish university degrees while they're in shelter they start businesses they write books and and yeah, and, and sometimes we see those end products that these books that come in the mail that, um, you know, and we've had the same type thing dedicated to our staff. It, it's really, it's really amazing. And, you know, we have to go on those stories to give us hope. We also need to know, and unfortunately with domestic violence, some women, you know, are constantly just dealing with that. And, and maybe they can successfully leave that situation, but you know, we hear of stalking that's ongoing um, and or there's children involved. So, you know, we have to rely on these stories for hope, but we also have to look at what the picture is. And for some women, it's, it's just something that goes on and on for many years, even though they've been able to, to physically uh, leave that relationship. Thanks for giving us a glimpse, Jen, of, of some of what you get to hear back in, in some of those some of those stories. Um, so I've got that one question left for you both. For those that are that are with us, um, feel free if there's a, a question you'd like to hear uh, more from uh, from Jen or from Sarah or both on. Please feel feel free to share that. Um, for those that are kind of joining midway through, I'm with uh, Sarah Castleman, the Executive Director of the Sexual Assault Support Centre, and, and Jen Hudden, the, the CEO of Women's Crisis Services. Um, and so in, in the blog, uh, Jen and Sarah, I shared some individual actions as well as some policy changes 
um, that would move us towards ending gender-based violence. And of course, most of those came from conversations we both um, had over the last couple of months. And so was curious if either of you wanted to, if both of you could share one or two that you wanted to highlight for people in terms of the actions uh, that someone could take as well as the policy. Those might be the same thing in terms of advocating for certain policies, but some of those things that you think could help us work towards reducing the wait lists and, and moving towards more of those kinds of stories that you were just sharing. Um, not sure who wants to read. Jen, do you, do you want to go first here and then over to Sarah? Yeah, um, just, just a couple things uh, kind of quickly that I'll pick up on. Um, it definitely, and we kind of talked about this a little bit already, but it's just around how we remove some of that shame and some of that secrecy that can be such a part of the gender-based violence. And how we have these conversations. And I've really, you know, again, have also seen the shift. Um, people have more of an understanding of how common this is. They're talking about it more and it, it empowers people to be a bit more open about their experiences. And it's just so important because the more we bring that out, the better. And, and the more we start to, to shift things. So, you know, I know you had highlighted um, our She Is Your Neighbor series, and we're going to continue on that. So I would encourage people to, you know, we have blogs, we have the podcast, but really there's so many different elements to gender-based violence and so many different stories. And we try to have different lenses. And, and you know, we had 10 very different stories. And you know, we were, we were looking at topics for our next series and like, there's like, oh, we didn't even touch on this. We didn't even touch on that. So there's still so much more to come, but I'm really encouraged by the conversation and we need to, to keep it going. Um, and you also touched a little bit on funding. You know, funding is, is a huge thing for us. Um, you know, we, we get government funding, but like I mentioned, we offer 90 beds, but 58 beds are, are covered, um, so we have to make up that cost, whether that's fundraising, grants, all that kind of stuff. Um, and sometimes doing, you know, I also alluded to trying the importance of doing, having a menu of, of services. Well, not all those services are, are covered. Sometimes, you know, prevention type services tend not to be as, as covered by um, government funding, um, although I hope that that changes. Things like our music therapy program um, is something that we have to entirely fundraise for. Um, so just kind of making note, but the more uh, community support, the more advocacy and um, awareness raising is also good, I think, for, for funding too. And both of your organizations are providing content that our community could be using. So I, I think of the She Is Your Neighbor podcast, even you know the way we have book clubs, for a group of people to come together, listen to the podcast, and then have a conversation informed by that story from that individual in our community. I found them to be really vulnerable and uh, pretty powerful conversations that are kind of offerings for us to take up and you know, move towards reducing the stigma uh, with. So yeah, thank, thank you to you and your, and your team for that, Jen. Uh, on the funding point, it made me think of something, uh, Sarah, you said earlier, where you said, well, the community has been so generous and so we've, we've been able to add additional staff. I think, well, I'm glad the community is generous, but what if in this particular year that wasn't possible, that, that the precarious nature of 
the gap between where government is providing support for a critical essential service and where community needs to meet that short-term need. Thanks for starting us on that conversation, Jen, in that there's, there's a bit of a tension, right? Where, yes, it's important that in the short-term, you know, we, the community steps up and also over the long-term, the reliability of that funding. Um, so I don't, I don't wanna steal your thunder though, Sarah, so I'll, I'll stop, I'll pause here and pass to you for kind of your top one or two as, as, as well. I have way more than one or two, but um, because you were talking about funding, I have to talk about funding first thing because it doesn't make sense to talk about it at the end now that we're talking about it. But the truth is, is that this, like supporting survivors, it takes funding. We need to pay the salaries of therapists. We need to pay the salaries of the folks that are, are doing prevention work in our community about sexual violence. And um, the, the, it's, it's a necessary thing. And so I think that one of it, ending gender-based violence requires a multi-pronged approach. It's like, it's like saying, how do you address racism or how do you address homophobia or transphobia? Um, it's a, it's a multi-pronged approach that will address a systemic issue. And so a couple of thoughts on funding. Um, I think that having services available for survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, sex trafficking, um, is a pretty basic service in our community. And I, I, I think it should be treated as an essential service. And I don't think that we should have to fundraise to the level that we do um, to fund an essential service in our community. And what if it was considered as such? Like, why do we just accept that some services are essential services that need to exist and others, um, you know, we need to fundraise for? So putting that out there, that I think advocating for funding at every level of government uh, for violence against women services is important. I'm talking at like the regional level, I'm talking provincially and federally, very important. Um, but then also if it's a priority for someone, uh, I think that Jen would agree that uh, our monthly donors are so important to our agencies because when you become a monthly donor, one, you're saying, I'm gonna stand in solidarity with you um, and your team and survivors uh, by doing that. And it also allows you to plan your services because you know, when we're hiring counselors, we can't hire them for a couple of months and then see where it goes. Like we need to be able to plan long-term. So uh, that that's really important. But so moving away from the funding conversation uh, right away, uh, a multi-pronged uh, approach, um, but some simple things, even having a commitment to learn how to respond when somebody discloses uh, gender-based violence is is really important so i think that most you know i'll speak specifically about sexual violence right now most survivors remember the first person they told and they remember their reaction and so uh too often survivors still get victim blaming kind of uh questions when they disclose why did you go home with him why did you um, you know, why did you say yes and then change your mind? Or why did you, and anytime you're asking a why question when someone is disclosing, you have to think about that because that's loaded in so many ways. And so it's often so hard for survivors to disclose. So having that, thank you for telling me, thank you for trusting me, I'm so sorry that happened. Like some of those very basic things are profound, um, and, but it, it has a big impact. 
So having some of those basic tools for how to respond and the nuances between, you know, when you're talking about children or talking about adults and when they're disposing and understanding what the resources are in the community, um, those, those basic things, I think, encourage folks to come forward. Some, sometimes people say that they don't know a survivor of sexual violence. And what I've often said is if you don't know a survivor of sexual violence, you should probably think about the message you're putting out or what you're putting out in the world. Because one in three women has experienced sexual violence and, and one in six men. So uh, sexual violence is, is something that's very prevalent. And if no one has disclosed to you, then you, you want to kind of think about the environment that you're creating. Um, but there's so many different things. There's improvements, vast improvements in our criminal justice system that can, can happen. Um, Jen was talking about the stats uh, around how often domestic violence is reported. Sexual violence, only 5% of sexual assaults are reported to police. It is, it is the minority of cases that are reported. And across Canada, of those, so for every 33 sexual assaults that are reported in Canada, 12 end up getting recorded as a crime six are prosecuted, and three lead to conviction. So there's so much work that needs to be done there. Um, and there's, there, I, I could talk about that for a long time. But what I would say is you want to support your community-based sexual assault center who understands those systems and is working to advocate and create change in those systems. Um, because it's a very complicated process um, that uh, actually Jen is engaged in this in our community too. There's a group of us that are doing lots of work with police, but that's only one part of our system. We also have uh, the court system and judges and everything like that, that is a broader criminal justice system. Um, simple things people can do is amplify the messages of your community-based violence against women organizations. We have Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, and we're, we're sharing everyday things on there. Uh, follow us, share our posts, um, get out the word in the community both about the services that are available and of the prevention work that we're trying to do. There's, there's just so many different things. Um, and I mean, there's basic things like volunteering, volunteer programs at both our organizations. So there's so many ways to get involved in uh, the social change requires so many different people doing so many things. But I do believe that we are in a period of social change right now. Um, and what we want to do is propel that forward to make sure that it doesn't like grow stagnant or stop, especially at this time when so much is shifting and changing related to COVID. And we're lucky that in our community we have organizations filled with passionate people uh, like both of your organizations that are catalyzing uh, all of this for others to then uh, be a part of. Um, on, on the monthly donor point, I think it's a great example. Um, there's a link to SASC in, in the chat box and Women's Crisis Services will be there shortly as well. Th that where government has been maybe not going as far as they ought to in terms of the the funding that organizations like yours need, reliable, sustained, unrestricted, to allow you to provide support to survivors and to, to meet the wait list that we've been talking about. Well, as individuals, we can do that. Uh, that's what a monthly donor is doing with that contribution. It's saying you can count on me for this amount of money on an ongoing basis, and I trust and respect your organization to put this where it will best go to support and as I've heard you say Sarah wrap a survivor in care 
And so whether that's a $5 or a 50 or a $500 monthly contribution, it's something that your organizations can count on. And that's something that I think both of you help make so clear in the conversations we've had. And um, uh, that that's such a, you know, one of many ways uh, of which there are others um, in, in, the, in the blog, um, including a number of the programs that both organizations provide that get at some of the root causes uh, around preventing and working upstream, as well as ensuring that there are supports available, you know, 24 hour crisis lines, for example, um, but also some of these up, upstream offerings that are also critical to get at uh, some of the root causes. Uh, Jen, I thought you might want to jump in there. I've got a question I'm going to go to next. Was there anything else you wanted to both add there before I do though? No, no, I think I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Great. So, so then in that case, someone's asking, um, this person saying, as someone who hasn't experienced domestic violence myself, but knows someone who has, how can I best support this per person within the friendship I have with them? In brackets, they're currently getting psychological support. Well, I would say just, just being there for them, um, listening, um, you know, checking in on them, making sure that they're safe. It, it's really, it's really something that is a personal journey, and um, it's. I, I've said it's. It's it takes a lot of patience. We know, you know, um, a woman. I think the average is now like maybe leave fourteen times before they they leave for good, and I really find that women sometimes have this light bulb moment or something that sticks that actually shifts and and then they're kind of able to kind of move forward honestly so many times that i you know have worked with people or even even sometimes staff that come in or volunteers that work with us the more they learn about domestic violence the more they reflect on past relationships and actually realize that they're not healthy because we just don't have that many great models of healthy relationships and it's not what we really even see in the media. But I think it's just important to be with somebody, to respect their journey, to be non-judgmental, just to be steady and to let them know that you're there, what they need, check in, just, you know, being a, being a good friend um, and uh, and just being steady, but knowing it, it's it's their journey. And part of what I'm hearing from you there, Jen, is the reliability and stability that that person knows that they can trust that that you're someone that that person can count on and create space for them to. Yeah, I like. Yeah, that's. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Creating space and uh, yeah, because it's 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 a process, and, and there's so many. So many challenges and so many barriers but i think if you you know people know as, as sarah said they you know they know who they're going to share with so obviously it says a lot that you know that that this information's been shared but i i, I think you just you know have to kind of hold steady and, and let them know that you're there for for what they need um and uh and they'll will let you know what they need i, I think people get frustrated sometimes with survivors because they don't understand all the reasons why someone stays and it's not just it's not just like financial 
uh, there's so much, but when you've endured potentially like years of abuse, your self-esteem is so low, your sense of whether or not you'd be able to survive on your own is so low. Um, so it's around of like holding steady for potentially a long time, making sure they know what resources are there, making sure that they know that you're going to be there, you know, a year from now when they're still in the same place, um, because it's a long process. Um, and, and people without that knowledge can get really frustrated really quickly that someone's staying. And, and your great advice from earlier, Sarah, of avoid the, the why questions. Uh, that's a very tangible uh, piece of advice, I think, for, for folks to be taking from this as well. And to know that we have, you know, that you can direct, that, that even, you know, calling a crisis line of either organization, whether it's around domestic violence or sexual violence, that that's welcomed as well. Um, and that, that there might be someone in there that could also support someone who is adjacent to uh, someone who is experiencing domestic uh, violence, for example. So I appreciate uh, that clarification as, as well. So th thanks again for both of your time tonight. Um, wanted to mention that the She's Your Neighbor podcast, again, as, as one um, way for, for someone who might be on, on this, uh, in this conversation to continue to, to, to hear some of these stories. And I also wanted to offer, Sarah, I know Chelsea's story um, is being shared next week. Uh, do you want to give, maybe give, we only got like a minute or so, but uh, would you mind sharing just a, a brief uh, for folks and maybe we can get a link to the Chelsea story in, in the, in the chat box for folks that might be interested in that too. Sure. sure. Um, Chelsea's story is uh, related to international for, for our human trafficking day next week, actually. And uh, it's, it's basically, there's going to be lots of talkbacks and things like that around sexual exploitation, what that looks like in our community, how folks can recognize it. Um, and just overall, our center has a lot of groups and workshops for the, for the general public uh, on how to respond when someone discloses, on how to be a good ally, on human trafficking in our community. And so our website has lots of different public education opportunities that you can sign up and attend via Zoom. Um, and we've actually seen more participation than ever before uh, through Zoom because it's so easy for folks to access. So I encourage people to check out our website and potentially attend one of our public education workshops. And so powerful, as the point you made earlier, Sarah, about hear, hearing some of those stories to better understand and have a, a more personal understanding and, and connection to the reality of, of uh, women and ch children in our community um, that, uh, that have experienced sexual violence and, and or domestic violence. Um, thanks again for both of your time tonight. Uh, we're going to close here. I want to also mention that tonight, uh, Fitzsim Argai is speaking with Antonio Michael uh, uh, Downing about his new book, Saga Boy, at the Waterloo Public Library. That's starting right now. And so if you were joining us up until this point, uh, I encourage you to, um, and, uh, you know, to check out that conversation. Um, thanks for joining us for this conversation. See the blog in the chat box for more um, in, in terms of ways you can be a, a part of moving towards ending gender-based violence in our, in our community. Uh, thanks again to both of you, Sarah and Jen, for taking time on a weeknight to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for you. Me. Thanks, Mike. Take, Take care, care. Have a good night.